the Lord's table. Lord's table is uh, sometimes called communion. It is called, sometimes called a fellowship supper. In various places of the Bible, it's called a love feast because it is a picture of what the uh, of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It is a picture of the love that he has for us in sending his son, and the love that we're so, supposed to display back. We love him because he first loved us. First John tells us that. God is love, so if we want to know what love is, we look at him and what he has done. Now the Lord's table was taken from the feast of the Passover, it's a new ritual that was instituted by the Lord the night before the cross. Now, there were all kinds of rituals throughout uh, Israel. We know that there were seven feasts that they would undergo at different times of the year. Three times they're told to all come up to Jerusalem and there to celebrate and worship. The spring feast is a Passover, unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. And that's a beautiful picture of the Lord at the first advent. Passover lamb. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew he, who he was. He was his cousin, but he knew he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, Behold my cousin Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of the God okay, that, that dies for the sin of the world. Now, here is... The Lamb of God portrayed in the spring feast. First fruits is a picture of resurrection. Fifty days later, about this time of year, is the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was celebrated as a, as a time that the Jews received the law 50 days after they walked out of Egypt. Now, that's quite something, isn't it? It's a picture of the changing of, of the law. Now, to us, that's very important because Hebrews 7.12 says, where there is a change of priesthood of necessity, there's a change of law. So every day on Pentecost, what they, every year on Pentecost, they would look and see, has the Lord changed the priesthood at all? And he had, no, he had not changed the priesthood until after Christ was resurrected. And then the priesthood became something totally new. It was a universal priesthood. That means you don't have to go to a priest, offer up sacrifices or anything else. You're, you're a priest. You offer them up to God. It is a universal priesthood. It is a royal priesthood because we are in Christ, and Christ is a king and a priest put together. And it is something that, that is for everyone who's a believer. Now we, And then the fall feast come about, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of uh, Booses, it is called, Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets, and these portray the second advent. Now, when the Lord instituted the Lord's table, he said, keep doing these things in remembrance of me. So it's going to be looking back on his life, which is first advent. And by doing this, you proclaim his death until he comes back, fall feast. Okay, so we have in the Lord's table, I think, the replacement for all the feasts. We can honor them, we can celebrate them, but we don't celebrate them as, as the Jewish people were to do under the Mosaic law. We don't celebrate them according to the law. We celebrate them based on the fact that the first one's been fulfilled and the second one is yet to come. 
And so it is a reminder of how we got to this point in history of a universal royal priesthood. How we got here was by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, the first fruit from the dead, as he is called, and then the fact that one day the trumpets are trumpets going to sound. Now there's going to be a trumpet at the rapture, going to be another trumpet at the second advent, and I honestly am looking forward to that. And I, 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 good thing I, I hit me not too long ago, and even if we're hard of hearing, we're going to hear that. I think that is gonna, that's going to just push right through. Everybody on the planet's going to hear this horn. And the unbelievers are going to go, huh? Some believers are going to go, manna, what is it? But we want to do hallelujah. That's praise to the Lord. We want to know what that trumpet is for. I've done more funerals this year already than probably any other year. Did one this last week for a, a fine man named Kenneth Mullings. Uh, battlefield medic in Korea goes a long way back and he was one of those guys that uh, uh, been out and seen it in a lot of, lot of ways and they said did you ever regret going in the military he said no absolutely not comes from a long line of military in his, in his family and what'd you ever, did you ever regret anything he said I couldn't get just one more that I've heard from more than one medic. More than one medic. Hacksaw Ridge, if you haven't seen it. You'll hear that from them because they see it firsthand. Well, as we as Christians, I think, ought to have that attitude. Do we want just one more? Because we are battlefield medics that's what we are we're supposed to take we're supposed to take healthy doctrine to feed a lost and dying world and take it out into all of the world and all of the nations that's what we're called called to do this lord's table is designed to be a reminder. It is designed to be a time of evaluation. Do we do we look into the mirror of the Word of God honestly and say, where am I now compared with where I was last time I did this? Am I making any progress? Is, how's the, the dash between the years on my life working? Because we have a date to be born and a date to die, and this dash just sums it up. Now, how's this dash on in our life working is there anything we need to change and see that's part of the Lord's table is not just the remembrance of what the Lord did but how is our life going in regards to his are we becoming what he has designed us to become people to worship him Have, are we becoming that so the Lord's table we always start before we partake of the elephants, elements we always start and look into the mirror of the Word of God. Now, unbelievers are not supposed to take to partake of this. They're specifically warned. For this cause, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So, unbelievers are not to partake of this. But what does it take to become a believer? Just a prayer between you and the Lord. Between you and the Father that says, I believe in your Son. I believe that your son came. He took my place on a cross. He died. He died. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. 
That's what I believe. And I am putting all my faith in Him right now for my eternal life. Is there any specific words? Is there any formula? Is there any work you can add to it? Not according to the Bible. Not according to the Bible. It's all about grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works lest any of us should boast. So this time of evaluation, I know some people just partake and they don't even think about this. You need to partake as a believer, as a saint, as a priest to God because it's a remembrance. It won't save you. It's done just like baptism. It's done because you're saved. It's a thank you to him and it is a renewal of this is what I would like to do to, in service to my Lord. So we take this time as, as Christians. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now hopefully we don't wait from communion to communion to do that. If we find ourselves involved in sin. Stop and confess it. Okay. At least father I've sinned. Because he knows what you've done. He wants you to know what you've done. See, and, that, and you confess it. And what is he? Faithful and just. It's fair because Jesus paid for that sin. To forgive us our sins. And then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know some that we do. Others we don't know. But if you confess the ones you know, he'll take care of the other ones. That's what he's talking about. And then we walk in such a manner as to be cleansed. It is a growth process. It is the sanctification to the believer in time against the power of sin. And that's where we need to be going. Not falling back into sin, but instead walking away from it. So this time of prayer is very important. For those who are not believers to believe. For those who are believers to analyze themselves. To analyze themselves and decide to make adjustments where the Lord shows them that they need it. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father we come before you today we are humbled you told us to come boldly into the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need and Father we are all flawed we're flawed and we come boldly in now to ask you for that grace and mercy Father, we pray that that where we have gone astray, that you will show us. We pray that where we have gone astray, that you will continue to extend your mercy and grace. And Father, I pray that we will have the gumption and the courage to make the adjustments that need to be made so that our lives may honor you. We thank you that every day for a Christian is a day of new beginnings. We give you the praise and the glory for that. May we appreciate all the more This time we spend thinking back about our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming back. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the bread is an amazing picture because the bread is a picture of his his sinless humanity. You can go ahead and take that little wafer out if you'd like. It's hard for us to... Excuse me. It's hard for us to imagine a perfect life. Because we look in the mirror and go, well, I didn't make it. We look at all of our friends and we're all able to judge well enough to know they didn't make it either. 
And then we ask, did anybody ever make it? Because, see, we as human beings are facing the problem of sin and death. We're all sinners facing eternity, and everybody's born with an innate knowledge there's something beyond this life. And so, how are we going to deal with, with eternity? Well, Jesus came to show us how to do that. That we can only be saved, not because we, we're not capable, we're not worthy, we are not able. We don't have the power. Anything you want to name, we are lacking in to save ourselves. All the world religions will tell you that you can save yourself. Just by good works or rituals or incantations or, or any number of things, sacraments. But they won't save us. And people eventually realize they won't save us. But what about a perfect life? Well, Jesus came. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And He brought all things into being, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And then it said, and the Word became flesh. Now that's hard to even grasp. God became man. And He dwelt among us, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The perfect balance. Because grace without truth is too easy and truth without grace is too hard. And he had the perfect balance of those, of those two. But he was born of a virgin because when Adam sinned, he passed on that sin to every member of the human race. And so how are you going to get somebody in who is perfect from the very beginning? Because there's no more Adams. How are you going to get somebody in like that? Well, being born of a virgin. It was required. It was required because Adam was not tainted by the seed, or, or Eve was not tainted by the seed of Adam. Because the Holy Spirit was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, and what about her sin nature? Well, when the Holy Spirit impregnated Eve, doesn't he have the power to purify? Isn't that what he does? So what about this seed maybe that was, or this egg maybe contaminated in Eve? The Holy Spirit touched it, purified it. The result's a perfect child. That's hard for us to even imagine. But beyond that, how about a perfect life for 30 years? Until the Lord said it's time, until the Father said, go to work. It's time to start your ministry. It's time to open up, time to tell people who you are. And from that point on, people attacked. They liked him doing his first miracle, changing the water into wine at a wedding. They enjoyed that part of what he did. And then he started telling them the truth. And the more he told them the truth, the less they liked him, because the darkness hates the light. And yet still, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While being persecuted, he didn't respond back. And this is God and man in the same being. He could have eliminated all of them. But he chose to let it play out. He chose to let it be. And so here is the Lord enduring insults from his friends, insults from his countrymen, being falsely accused, accused of blasphemy of the Father over and over again, and yet without sin. This is the lamb being observed before it is sacrificed.
They charged him with sin, and the Lord looked at him and said, Which one of you accuses me of sin, or charges me with sin? What can you find? The only thing they could find was based on the traditions of the elders. That was it. But nothing in the law that God inspired. An absolutely perfect life. Now what did this perfect life do? He did good. He healed the blind man. He healed the leper. He cast out demons. He healed every kind of sickness that could be imagined. Because because the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to show you something. Rise, take up your pallet and walk. I'm going to do something you can see. You can't see that I can forgive sins. But I'm going to show you. I can. There's something I can do. I'm going to heal this man right here. And I will show you I have the power. I have the innate power to be able to heal. I have the innate power to be able to forgive. And so when I say your sins are forgiven, only God can forgive sins. Are you saying I'm God? He told them who he was. He didn't hide it. He told the disciples... We're going to go into Jerusalem. They're going to put me on a cross. That's what they're going to do. And he says, and three days later, I'm going to rise again from the tomb. Now, that's all wrapped up in this little piece of bread, this little wafer. So it says that in the same night, he was betrayed. He took the bread. He broke it. And he said, This is my body. This is broken for you. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. And the cup is a picture of his work. It's a picture of his work. It's an amazing picture. Because he did a work that only he could do. The disciples said... Let us do the work you do. Let us drink from the cup that you drank from. He said, sorry, it can't happen. They weren't qualified. They weren't qualified to be the cup of blessing and the cup of cursing. They weren't qualified because they knew sin. Quite obviously, they all knew sin. They argued, all, all of them argued about who was the greatest. That was a, a, the sin of pride that was going on in the disciples for three and a half years. All the way to the day before the cross. The sin of pride was being displayed and emanate. <clears throat> and yet they never, they never saw it. But he was qualified. They came and got him after being betrayed by one of the twelve. For thirty pieces of silver. Thirty pieces of silver is what betrayed him. By the way, that was prophesied. Of all things, the exact amount and number was prophesied. And Judas, some think that maybe he was trying to encourage Christ to go ahead and bring the kingdom on in. No, it just says he betrayed him, is what it says. It doesn't talk about his motives or anything. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. If he just wanted to bring the kingdom on in, why take the silver? Doesn't make any sense, does it? So, anyway, he betrayed him. They took him to six tribunals. Nobody could really find him guilty. And yet, when Pilate gave him the, uh, the option, they said, give us Barabbas. We want him. And they said, what should I do with this man? And they said, crucify him. Sadly, those are people just like you and I. 
He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This little cup is about his work. It is about what he did on the cross over the course of six hours, three hours of total darkness. It's what he did for us on the cross. When it was done, one word, tetelestai, it is finished in the English and that, I believe, fully shook heaven and hell. Both. Because to make it totally dark for three hours, he'd just about have to stop the universe, wouldn't he? Because eclipses don't last that long. He turned the lights out. You know, he's going to turn the lights out again one of these days, just before the second advent. And then he's going to come back and light up the whole world. But see, this cup... This cup is about what he did on a cross in our place. Not just for the sins of the whole world, but for me individually and you individually. So when we partake of this cup, it is indeed a great blessing. It was a cup of cursing for him, a cup of blessing for us. But one day we're all going to celebrate together. Whenever we join the angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? And he took the cup... And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back again. Let's drink. Father, it's amazing. In this little piece of bread and this little cup, what you have portrayed, the plan of the ages, consummation of the ages, everything goes to the cross the death burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ history unfolds all the way to the cross and then it begins to fold back up you'll put it all back together and one of these days the Lord will come take his own out which is us and then he will judge those he will put all the enemies under his feet and father we will all be celebrating we'll be celebrating for the joy of those who have believed. And Father will actually be sad to a degree for those who have chosen against him and chosen the alternative. Father, we pray that we will seek to get one more, to bring one more to this, this massive ark that you have prepared, to bring one more to this feast and this festival that is a table prepared for us. Father, we pray that that will be our intention. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And they sang a hymn. When did I take all the kids' time? <laughs> Today. Almost? Okay. We'll often go ahead. We've, we've, we've been praying for you. We'll keep praying for you. Okay? Amen. We... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, are studying worship right now. It's an interesting thing. It's kind of like uh, bronch riding. You can read all the books you want to read about bronch riding, but till you get in the saddle, you really don't know what it is. And so we are studying worship, but it's important not to just study worship. Just like prayer. We study prayer and see some principles of prayer, but it's more important to do it than to spend all your time studying it. So worship is so very important and we've seen a lot of things uh, about worship and worship is what we do with 
every part of our being. I mentioned the five soul laws a week or two ago, and I forgot the fifth one. I always forget the fifth one. I don't know why I forget, because it is sola deo gloria. Only glory to God. And that's the one I just, I don't know why. Sola fide, sufficiency of faith. Sola Christos, sufficiency of Christ. Sola gratia, sufficiency of grace. And sola scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture. The five solas of the, of the Reformation that came out that was a foundation of doctrine that would lead and change the world in a lot of good aspects. Now, as we study worship, and we look at what the Bible has to say. We get some things that are taught here. Some may claim to want to worship the Lord. But their real intention is harm to him or his followers. We had examples of that in Mark 2.8. This is one example. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said... Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Huh. And obviously we know the story. They didn't go back. They knew he was a phony, baloney, and so that's what they did. Mark 15:19. Here is the, the soldiers took him away into the palace. That is the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort thousand men and they dressed him in purple and after weaving a crown of thorns they put it on him they began to acclaim him hail king of the Jews and they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him and after they had mocked him they took the purple off him and they put his garments on him and they led him out to crucify him the bowing down, the, the prostrating before the face of all part of worship at time. Some may claim to do it, but their real intent is harm to him directly or to his followers. So there are wolves in sheep's clothing that Paul said quite clearly was go were going to <laughs> infiltrate the church. When he was giving the uh, graduation address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20... You can read through that because he warns them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. For savage wolves will creep in unnoticed amongst yourself. And they will lead the flock astray. Be on guard for them. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Satan wants all worship to himself. Now that only makes sense. He's the evil one. He is anti-God. He doesn't, when anytime we worship the Lord and we worship him in spirit and in truth like we're called to worship him, anytime we worship the Lord, Satan doesn't like it. Just think about that. He doesn't like worship going anywhere but to himself. He wants to take all the worship of, of the Lord God Almighty into his own presence. Matthew 4, 9 is an example. And when you see that ampersand in there, that and sign, that means it is a parallel passage. I use that to denote parallel passages between the four synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you see that in between these, they're saying basically the same thing. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, 
All these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, remember this after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and he's hungry. Jesus said, be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and they began to minister to him. So look at the battle the Lord and his humanity fought all by himself. And humanity, true humanity, guess what? He would have experienced 40 days with no food more than any of us would. He would have experienced it. It would have hurt more. It would have been more difficult because he didn't have a sin nature to get in the way. The sin nature sometimes is one of those things that acts as a shield in the wrong way to the things that we need to learn. But he got it full bore. When people mocked him, we often laugh, sticks and stones may break my bones and words will never hurt me. He got it full bore. He knew exactly what it was like, what they were saying, knew the hearts inside of them that were doing it. He knew their intentions because that's who he was. Worshiping idols is part of his system. Acts chapter 7 and verse 43, it says, And you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you from beyond Babylon. Now this is Stephen, just before they pick up rocks and stone him. And that is, uh, he's just telling us there some basic principles about, about idols and worshiping idols. And um, the, what is an idol? It's anything between you and God. It doesn't have to be a little Buddha. It doesn't have to be a little elephant God. It doesn't have to be anything visual. It doesn't have to be a Maserati. It doesn't have to be any of those things. There are all kinds of idols that come out there. It's anything between you and God. Or anyone between you and God. That's what an idol is. And you can see how far reaching that is. That means we could turn fame into an idol. And of course, do we, what do we do here in the United States with all our humility? We have shows like American Idol. We're going to make the next idol. What do we call rock stars? Idols. Oh boy. If we get messed up, people between us and God is a problem. How about fortune? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What about power? Why do some people have more money than they'll ever know what to do with? What are they looking for next? Not more money. It's the power that they can buy with it. And pleasure? Some people take all of their money and spend it on pleasure. They can hardly wait to the next weekend and get their paycheck. And they head off to any number of places just to worship pleasure. Another way to look at it is people. People, places, things, and events. Some people worship other people. We're not supposed to worship other people. Places. Oh, holy places. We're supposed to worship the holy place? Well, not here in the church for sure. In the church age, do we have a holy place? There are some holy places designated as such geographical locations on the globe and they have some significance but are they really holy to us now? Set apart sanctified by God aren't you a temple of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) 
You're the holy place. Isn't that interesting? We go looking for looking for love in all the wrong places. How about looking for God in all the wrong places? That's what we do. Things. Oh man, the latest phone that does ridiculous things. These phones, they've been such a blessing and such a curse. They can track us anywhere that we want to go. 19, Orwell's 1984 has come to pass. They, they know what's going on. How about events? Oh my gosh. There'd be, how many people will do anything to get Super Bowl tickets or, or NBA championship tickets? Or, I mean, they're worshiping the things. And that's the problem. That's part of the system. He wants us to worship idols. His followers may even give lip service to God. Revelation 13. Oh man, we're getting right in the heart of the tribulation here. Verse 3 to 5. The whole earth was amazed. Said and followed after the beast. Now we know who that is. That's the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon. Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast. So that's two things. The dragon is the devil. The beast is the Antichrist. And so they worship the dragon. They worship the beast. That's two things in front of God they shouldn't be worshiping. Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped him saying who is like the beast. And who is able to wage war with him. So see the beast knowing prophecy. Takes a ten nation confederacy in Egypt. And he conquers three of the nations. That's Revelation 17. And then he establishes an eighth nation out of those seven. Is what, what he does. Revelation 13 verse 7 and 9. It was given to him to make war with the saints. And to overcome them. Uh, what? You want to be on the side of the saints in the trib? If you read this you go. I'm going to get overcome. Ah, now you're supposed to be an overcomer. You can be an overcomer even if you die. That's what people don't realize. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. The martyrs that have gone before us, that have stood there and sang hymns, sang hymns to the Lord while they're being eaten by lions or burned at the stake, fighting gladiators, whatever it is. Authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anybody has an ear, listen. Let him hear. Pay attention. Now the authority was given to the beast. And he tries to get this authority established. It was given to him. How? Well, evidently the United Nations got together and elected a world leader. But did he ever consolidate his power? No, he didn't. He didn't because the king of the north sure wasn't on his side. The kings of the east would try to join him. The king of the south was not on his side. And they got, they got conquered. So he did not ever completely do this. But the law was worship this guy. That's what it was. Second Thessalonians, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come, this man of lawlessness, unless the departure comes first. Apostasy means literally the standing apart from a departure. 
That's what Andy Woods did with the <coughs> with the great book we used to have there on the back table. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being a God. There's no the God in there. So he is a, he is a polytheist, fits in well with Hinduism, fits in well with Buddhism, fits in well with Confucianism. They all believe there's many, many gods. And so the Antichrist fits in well with them. This is one of this is one of his objectives. One of his objectives. And I jumped spots and went back. The followers in, in that previous one even give lip service <coughs> to God. Revelation eleven one is when that John is told to take a rod and measure the temple in the tribulation. He says was given me a measuring rod. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. It's the wrong temple. It is the wrong altar and it's the wrong worshipers that are there in the tribulation. So the tribulational temple is not the millennial temple. It's a totally different temple. Tribulational temple, wrong size. How do we know it's not the right one? Because he gave the dimensions in Ezekiel. 40 through 48, they're prophesied. And what do we find in the tribulational temple? Wrong size. Didn't, didn't the Lord, when he said the, temp, the tabernacle, he said, see to that that you make it exactly as I told you on the mountain. What does he do with the temple? See to it that you make it exactly as I tell you. Make it according to specs. Why? It's going to be measured one day, and that will be the proof that it is wrong. It is the wrong one. This is one of the objectives. Now Satan is going to force worship of himself wherever possible. Another part of Revelation 13. This is all interesting passages because in uh, Revelation 12, the midpoint of the book, verses 7 to 9, is all about the angelic conflict. Running as as the background noise through the whole book of Revelation is the battle between God and Satan. It's very clear. It's right the center verses of that of the last book of the Bible. In Job 25, the center verses of the first book, written book of the Bible, also angelic conflict. First and last, beginning and the end, and everything in the middle is a battle between God and Satan. Now, he's going to force it wherever possible. Revelation 13, I saw another beast out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all authority in the first beast in his present. He makes the earth and those dwell in it to worship the first beast whose plague of death literally was healed. So the false prophet's job is to get everybody to worship the Antichrist. The beast out of the sea is the Antichrist. beast out of the land is the false prophet. So wherever he gets the opportunity, he's going to force worship of himself. The end result of worshiping Satan without partaking of the grace of God is a lake of fire. That's the end result. From Revelation 19, we keep moving through the last book of the Bible, and he says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. 
What happened in the early part of 19? The wedding of the Lamb. Okay, the Lord got married. The ceremony was completed. Who was that to? The bride of Christ. When was she taken up there? Seven years earlier. Okay, and that and she was made ready for her groom. And then we come back together. And it says, And I, John, saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. We're going to be coming back on white horses and, you know, people say, well, is that spaceships, whatever it is. I truly hope it's white horses. I don't even care to ride horses, but I truly hope it's white horses because I won't get thrown off if we're doing it. He puts us all on a white horse and we come back. Uh, Gary Horton says it's got to be Harley Davidson's. I don't think that's what it is. Um, but we come back where his army and said the beast was seized. With him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So that's the end result of worshiping Satan for the beast and the false prophet is being thrown alive into the lake of fire. And here's an important point in Acts chapter 19. Uh, actually, I'll pick up verse 23. Anything that can be dethroned is not worthy of worship. Now, what does that include? <laughs> Kings of the earth. Can they be dethroned? Absolutely. Anything that can be dethroned is not worthy of worship. If it can fall apart, wear out, break down, crash and be destroyed, not worthy of worship. Acts 19.23 And there came, and about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. That's what early Christians were called. They had joined the way. Why? Because one of those disciples leaked what the Lord had told them in the upper room when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I find it interesting because I do believe there was the gospel presented in the stars before any written canon. And you know what the zodiac means? The way. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the way. But he says, No small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. See, this is all about money, right? Follow the money? These he gathered together were the workmen of similar trades, i.e. making idols, and said... Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. Our livelihood. Everything we've got, everything we are, we've got to have this idol-making thing. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. <laughs> Speak truth on what's going to happen. Somebody's going to go after you. And not only is there danger 
that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. <laughs> now think about the comments. Are they deluded? It's already a disreputable trade. <laughs> and they're afraid that it's going to fall into disrepute. It's kind of like a fraudster being afraid that he's going to be accused of fraud. They know what they, they already know what it is. They know what they're doing. They know that it's all wrong. But don't accuse me of it. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis. What's he lining up here? A battle of the gods. Be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now is anything that can be dethroned worth worshiping? Nothing. Nothing at all. So Satan wants everybody to worship him. We have to keep in mind that that not anything between us and God is an idol. It does not need to be a person. A husband and wife need to have God at the center of their marriage relationship. That's just a fact. You know, we might be on different sides of the spectrum or whatever, but the closer we both get to God, the closer we'll get together. That's just the way it works. That's why oftentimes when people marry, there's an attraction that is there, but hopefully it grows and matures over the years. It's a uh, blessing to see that happen. But when we keep our eye on what about a church? Do you think a church that keeps her eyes on the Lord would get closer together? Do you think a church keeps her eyes on the Lord would love one another all the more? Do you think a church that keeps her eyes on the Lord would worship Him in spirit and truth? Do you think a church that keeps her eyes on the Lord would be, be one who bears one another's burdens? Do you think a church that keeps her eyes on the Lord would be one who serves one another? All those one another things, we keep our eyes on the Lord, this is going to become more and more a part of who we are. Not just going through the motions. Not just keeping on with the schedule. This is who we become. And that's what we want to be. We don't want to act unselfish, humble, and sacrificial. We want to be unselfish, humble, and sacrificial. Because isn't that who the Lord was? All the way. We want to be like Him. Because that will draw more people to join in this great big feast that we're going to have one of these days. We are talking yesterday morning, I think, at the breakfast table. and Wasn't it that when we were talking about the table, it was 350 feet long? And in, in eternity, we'll be able to talk to the person on the other end of the other end of the table. I'm not sure about that one still. But we'll be able to connect a lot better. And we'll have all that. See, the key is... We'll have all the time we need <laughs> to be able to visit with people that, that we would like to and even to get to know. And we'll have time to visit with the people we don't didn't like on this side too. That'll be, <laughs> that's always fun. Let's pray. Father, it's been a good day, another good day. We thank you for all of your blessings. We thank you for all of your tests. Father, we thank you for just the grace that you have poured out on each and every one of us in order to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we have received him, let us also walk in him. Let us do all things to your glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.